Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, uh, I'm excited about today's guest. His name's John Hoffman. He looks after Invesco's American ETF business and index strategies. Why is Invesco so interesting? Yeah, you know, they're they're in the heart of the industry. They've been around for a long time. It, you know, they acquired power shares. And they're the fourth biggest issuer, so they're you know maybe a little less publicized because they're the biggest outside of the big three. But they have a three hundred sixty-three billion, um, and they've taken in twenty billion dollars this year, which again puts them about third or fourth in flows this year. Again, those are ridiculously big numbers for ETFs. Um, you know, it's very difficult business to to get going in, and they have two hundred thirty-three funds and. They've taken in cash in 163 of them this year, which to me really speaks at what's going on. There's a feeding frenzy in ETFs this year more than any other that I've ever seen. And that number to get that, you know, we know they take in money to the queues. I mean, they're the big stud blockbuster ETFs you hear about that are theirs. You kind of know they've taken in money, but they've 163, including some interesting areas like uh, commodities, uh, the value. Uh, there's a there's a bunch of different things that I I think would be good time to just look at. Who, you know what's going on this year uh, from an issuer standpoint. They have a great uh, uh, point of view uh, as to who's buying them, why, and, and what's going on. Yeah, the whole customer conversation is an interesting one. This time on Trillions, the ETF feeding frenzy with Invesco's John Hoffman. John, welcome to Trillions. Hey, Joel. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me today. Okay. So when I think of Invesco, I think of the Qs, QQQ. You've got a ton of other ETFs, as Eric just mentioned, um, 233, I think. How many of those can you name off the top of your head? Uh, you know what? Um, that, that's a good question. All 220, uh, 230 would be challenging. The tickers for each one would certainly be challenging, help, but um, I've been here for nearly every one of these launches, and so they're all my babies, um, all of our babies. And so uh, I don't have a favorite. I don't have a least favorite, um, but the, you are right. There's quite a few, and and, uh, and and we'll continue to expand that as we hear from more clients about how to help them build better portfolios. Okay, so that's a lot of babies, and, and I'm curious, you know, being the fourth biggest issuer, and you have the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and the State Street, and then there's a little bit of a fall off in terms of AUM before you get to Invesco. And I'm, and I'm curious, how do you guys think about competing with the, that big three? Yeah. So this is a question. It's an interesting question. It's one we get a lot. And, you know, I think that we've been incredibly deliberate and intentional, intentional uh, as we, as it relates to our product design and development and who we are in the market. 
Um, you know, in a lot of ways, we've really carved out and built and pioneered the, you know, what, what today is referred to as the smart beta category. Um, we do things in beta as well, but our core competency and really what we invented and pioneered was this idea of smart beta. Again, today we all call it smart beta. Um, I can tell you back in the early 2000s when I was talking with clients, uh, that terminology didn't even exist. And so if you go, Joel, I think all the way back to the beginning, which is um, you know where we still are today in terms of how we think about the business, we thought that the ETF was a tremendous you know, delivery vehicle for investment purposes for all the reasons that everybody knows today. They're low cost, they're transparent, tax efficient. These things rattle off of everybody's tongue today. Uh, 20 years ago, you know, that was still a new idea. But our idea was let's take that benefit rich delivery vehicle, the vehicle for delivering investment returns, and let's track indices that are actually built to be investable. And that was the combination that we put together, which was new at the time. Uh, today, it's it's well known and well called, you know, or documented as smart beta. But that's what we were born on. Uh, that's what we pioneered. That's what we invented. And it's all about providing investors better ways to invest. And, and, and Joel, I think about, you know, the first index was built in the 1890s, right? I mean, people are driving Model T Fords back in, in, in this time period. It might even be before the Model T Ford. Fast forward to today, um, you know, 1950s, you had the S&P 500 index. Come all the way today, you have better technology, more data, more insights. And our idea was take all of that advanced technology and partner it with a benefit-rich vehicle for delivery, combine that beneficial attributes of active management and passive, and deliver them in this new digital format. And that technology um, is as relevant today as it was 15 years ago, and that's how we've really you know, uh, carved our, our core focus, uh, if you will, from a product development, and, and more importantly, from a client experience perspective. Yeah, and that's um, something that we see, uh, you know, you, I always say you could put Mickey Mantle rookie cards in an ETF and it would probably be the best possible way to trade Mickey Mantle rookie cards, uh, which is why we're very pro Bitcoin ETF. We've seen everything thrown in there. China A shares active, just pure active, smart beta themes. It really is a amazing structure. Now, that is known and, you know, ETFs have been taking in money every year for uh, two decades. So, this year, though, it's gotten insane, right? The ETFs typically take in about $2 billion a day. This year, they've taken in $4 billion a day. And I guess I'm just curious what's going on. Um, why is there such an uptick in money coming in this year? What's your take on that? Yeah, so again, I'd, I'd widen out the lens, right? The ETF is a technology. It's a technological innovation for delivering investment returns. And it's it's perfect. It's very you know great design. Um, when you think about great design and simplicity, um, you know think about the Google search interface. One little bar. You know they've done an incredible job keeping that simple. Uh, I think about the iPhone and how easy it is to use. You know my kids can unlock my iPhone and take pictures. Um, you know it's just intuitive. And so this is the ETF represents a, a disruptive technology, an innovation. I think that, you know, we go back 30 years here, you think of the time horizon, it's still in its early stages when you think of this, not in time or in assets, but in network effects. And so we think about, you know, not necessarily um, the, the growth more recently, but over this long horizon, 10 distinct network effects that are playing out. Uh, in the ETF segment. And, and network effects is really just a fancy way of saying the more people that use a service, 
the more valuable you know the service is, right? I use the analogy of Uber, right? If there's one car on the Uber network and you push the button, um, it's not very useful. When there's 10, 1,000, a million, when there's a car at every corner, that network is very, very useful and powerful. And what we're seeing, Eric, is, is this network effect play out in ETFs. We're still in some of the mid stages of these network effects, things like model portfolios, the growth of retail, you know, self-directed, but it's really about this incredibly efficient technology for delivering investment returns that's, that's powering this growth. And every time we have a disruptive event, um, you know, think back to 2000, 2008, coming out of 08, the ETF product grew significantly. Coming out of 2000, the product grew significantly. As we come through the pandemic, you know, money has moved out of older structures and it's coming into new. And so, you know, yes, it's, it's a trend that I think people are looking at today. Uh, you know, the, the numbers are staggering. We're on pace for a trillion dollars of inflows here in the U.S. But this is really just a continuation of a trend that's been in motion for quite some time. And, you know, I, we think a lot about the big macro trends that are powering this. And those haven't changed, right? When you think about the, the move to fiduciary, when you think about the move from you know, active investing to passive, which again, we think the words are wrong there. You know, almost all investors are, are active investors. Uh, you know, some of these trends around regulation, um, technological innovation, this industry is gonna change more in the next five years than it has in the past 50. And it's just an acceleration, a continuation of this trend around better technology for driving investment returns. One of the lanes that we find opening up more in terms of people using ETFs is the direct do-it-yourself retail investor. And a strand of that is the sort of like YOLO retail trader type. And where you really get to meet them is on TikTok. <laughs> they make some, there's some wild videos on there. That's really, if you just type in an ETF hashtag, you'll find some fun stuff on there. Some more serious, some just downright insane. Um, you have an interesting story here about SPHD and the power of TikTok. Uh, can you go over that? So we're talking about TikTok here. All right. Um, so I, I would start with, you know, this idea that what's driving this, this direct market growth. You know, there's a huge macro factor here of, of commissionless trading, uh, commission-free trading, which has reduced the frictions to, to transacting. And so, Eric, to your point, we have seen really significant growth in this segment. And as we unpack the segment and see what drives the behaviors, we are finding some very interesting elements of influence. One of our more obscure tickers at the time had a really high ownership on Robinhood. And as we looked at the disproportionate ownership in Robinhood, what we attributed it back to, uh, what we found was a TikTok video uh, from an investor or, or a client that was putting forth a strategy to hold this particular ETF um, for a period of time. And we saw that video go from a thousand hits to 5,000 to 50. It ultimately had over half a million views. And the correlation of account openings and transaction uh, data on some of the underlying platforms uh, was really indicative of how powerful all of these other mediums are uh, around buying decisions and asset flows and ETFs. Something that, again, traditionally uh, was not our core focus, uh, but increasingly you know, is important to understand the drivers of flows. Invesco QQQ is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Want to rethink what's possible? How about being an investor, not just in your future, 
but the future. Well, it all starts with Invesco QQQ. For more than 25 years, this single ETF has given investors a direct line to the NASDAQ 100. That's 100 leading innovators behind advances in personal tech, science, and robotics, just to name a few. And you can access it all with Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Let's get into some tickers here because, you know, I think they can be representative of what's going on. So in my opinion on the two to four, I get the whole transformative technology. I, I think that's good for two billion. I think the four is because the market has breadth this year. And by breadth, I mean small caps, value, international commodities. A lot of these left behind places have been working uh, for most of the year, not the past month so much. But RSP is a great example. So this is your equal weighted ETF. This year, it's your best-selling ETF, better than the Qs. And to me, the Qs probably defined last year. RSP this year, it has more value, slight tilt to smaller companies. Um, and I want to ask you about RSP. It's so simple. You just equate the S&P. When I go to the money show and interact with direct retail investors, it's weird. I love hearing their questions. And I do get asked about equal weighting a lot. Um, I guess just talk to me about what are people buying here? What do you think of RSP? Like, how are how are they using it? Are they replacing like a VU, or is this like a trade? When I say VU, I mean like a Vanguard 500, or is this like a trade where you add a little RSP on top of your portfolio for a little juice, and then you trade out of it? So, Eric, I think this gets right to the core of who we are, right? And, and first off, we we believe in long term investing, um, and when you think about that construct our idea of providing you know better return patterns and and creating methodology that's more efficient let's take rsp as the example here what is this is it a trade is it short term what are we looking at so it is simple it equally weights the securities incredibly simple all 500 securities the s p 500 receive the same weight what does it do what it does is it provide a more balanced exposure to the S&P 500. And why have we seen it this year accelerate? The S&P 500, the top 10 names right now have a, nearly a 30% concentration. So you're getting you know, a very concentrated exposure to some large uh, cap names, um, which again, a lot of the return is gonna be driven by those big, big stocks, right? Those big companies. What RSP does is provides you a little bit more exposure to the size premium in the market. So it's tilting a little bit more towards small cap, right? Which again, is a differentiated and, and rewarded return pattern. It's also taking advantage of the value factor. So it's going to tip a little bit more towards the value spectrum. And so we don't look at this over you know, a day or a week or a month. We believe that RSP can provide a very efficient core U.S. equity exposure. And to the tickers that you've referenced, that the broader S&P 500 exposures, you know, those are nearly a trillion dollars in AUM when you add them up, right? And what we're finding is that clients are looking to 
um, you know, ultimately balance their concentration a bit more in the index, diversify a little bit differently. And that's why this year, you know, we've seen significant flows there. And now I think RSP is the largest smart beta ETF in the U.S. market. You know, another theme from this year that I'm really interested in talking with you about has been the commodities boom. And you all have a, a, a huge foothold in commodities, but specifically sort of in commodities futures. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you approach that, because outside of basically the, the GLDs of the world, you guys are basically the biggest name name there. But, but why focus on futures instead of more of an equity play? Sure. So when we entered the commodity space in, in the mid 2000s, we looked at what was already in the market. And, you know, there were some some great uh, physical base capability. And what we saw was an opportunity to pioneer the futures segment. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, there were other futures products in the market, you know, ETFs buying futures. What we did was we went back to our core DNA, which is about building enhanced you know, strategies. And so we applied, we partnered with Deutsche Bank in this lineup in, in the mid 2000s, and we actually utilize an intelligent index. So the index looks at the shape of the futures curve and identifies where to roll futures, kind of like a manager would uh, you know, in, in, in a more active fund, identifying the most opportune place to roll forward those futures. And so DBC was our flagship product there, broad commodity exposure. We then expanded on that and got to the individual sectors, DBA and agriculture, DBO and oil. Um, and as we continued to iterate and work with clients, one of the opportunities we found was a, a way to deliver this without a K-1. Uh, and so we created PDBC, which is um, a very similar product to DBC, uh, holding futures. Uh, but it has a structure that enables us to pass through a 1099 uh, instead of a K-1. Again, there's trade-offs and benefits of each of these structures. Uh, in this instance, that's what we were solving for. And now that's a, uh, you know, a $6 billion fund um, providing you know, a broad exposure to commodities, which, you know, Joel, in this idea of long-term investing, what we see is model portfolio builders, you know, attracted to the correlation properties of commodities. And so, you know, Eric would probably ask, is this a short-term trade? I would argue that a well-constructed portfolio is going to find, you know, value in a correlation pattern that's different than stocks and bonds. Uh, and so we think that in many ways, this is a, an allocation in a long-term uh, asset allocation. Yeah, um, certainly. And, and I think the one thing with these commodity futures ETFs, and, and we have a traffic light system, and we do give them a red light, although this system isn't saying it's good or bad. It's, it's most like movie ratings, like, hey, this is, this is kind of like a rated R ETF. And the reason we say that simply is because of rolling futures. When you roll futures, you tend to pay more for the next month than the month you just sold because people know that you don't want to get delivery of oil to your house. So the storage costs are kind of baked into this roll cost. So I'm not saying you could do it any better if you traded futures on your own, but there is, it's not really seeing the expense ratio. Do you try to like warn clients of this or how do you explain contango and this idea of rolling futures? Because in some of them, like oil in particular, it can be a pretty hefty cost over the years. Now, it could go opposite and actually benefit you when there's a rush for commodities. I get that. That's more like a full moon. I think normal circumstances, though, is you do pay for the roll. 
Yeah, Eric, you're you're spot on, and that's actually what the product is designed to do: is optimize that roll. So it has rules built into the index to look at the shape. So to get very granular and specific, it looks at the particular curve. So let's say we're in oil and we're going to roll a contract. It's going to calculate the implied roll yield on the next 13 months, and then it's going to select the place on the curve that would be the most optimal to roll. Um, And if you think about the first generation of futures-based commodity products, they did exactly what you said. They statically rolled every month, front month, you know, regardless of the shape of the curve. And what we did was we said, hey, hold on a second. There might be a more intelligent way to do this by using a basic algorithm that calculates roll yield um, and identifies the place to, to, to roll onto the curve. And Eric, that's what we've been doing in all of our products. It's, you know, it's not about, um, you know, uh, the, the, each one has its own design um, to take a little bit of intelligence, still be an index, right? It's passively managed, index-based rules methodology, but put a little bit of intelligence into the product uh, to create a better outcome. And again, you know, will these outperform in every market? Absolutely not, right? There will be periods of underperformance, but what we're hired to do is provide the return pattern to clients uh, for that particular index, and that's what we do, you know, really, really well. Cut is your is your wood ETF, right? Which you know is much more friendly, let's call it, um, since it's it, it's a PG rated um, uh, ETF in in the stoplight system. So how do you how do you think about being such a big name in commodities, but then basically having different tools for different people? I guess. Yeah, I, I would draw the parallel to you know microprocessors in a computer, right? We create these microprocessors that provide return patterns to clients. Cut is providing the return pattern of the equities um, in the timber market. If you want to buy timber directly, um, you know there's ETFs that hold those futures. If you want to get closer to the ags and and the underlying um, you know grains and metals, we can provide that exposure as well. So cut is a you know basket of securities that are focused uh, in that particular market. It's the equity exposure, uh, you know, not necessarily the the futures exposure. And so again, Joel, I think it's about providing uh, more return patterns to clients. You know, we get this question: Is there the rise of the thematics? Right. I, I think that this is really about um, you know, or the rise of smart beta or some iteration of that. This is really about the evolution of technology. The reason why the Dow Jones Industrial Average is price weighted is because that was the only way you could calculate it every day in 1900. Right. Today we can calculate things more efficiently with technology, and it's enabled us to carve up the return patterns more precisely. And that's really what we're focused on is precision of return patterns um, using modern technology wrapped inside of a very efficient delivery mechanism. Yeah, actually, it's funny you say the rise of thematics. We've we've really distilled this down into, into two buckets, cheap beta or dirt cheap and shiny objects. Um, and I would put thematics, arc, commodities, things that are just happening, um, but not happening a little, not like outperforming the S&P by 1% like the old days, but literally crushing it um, or providing something very unique. And that leads me to another area that I want to ask you about, which is crypto. And look, there's now 15 issuers that have filed for crypto, including some big, bigger names like Vanek, your competitor, Fidelity. 
Are you guys considering getting getting involved in this? Because if you're a leader in commodities, you know, outside of GLD and IAU, you're right there. I would think this would make sense given that people want to use it for similar purposes, non-correlated returns, uh, shiny objects. It seems right up your alley. How come you haven't filed yet? So, Eric, we, we recently filed this as a public filing for, again, the equities capability um, in, in both the blockchain. Yeah, and, uh, I, okay. I, mean, okay. I know. So, you've okay, the blockchain ETF that holds stocks, that, that makes sense. Um, okay, great. But I'm talking about the real deal. Sure. So, let's get to it. So, look, this blockchain, digital assets, cryptocurrency, again, a substantial technological innovation. We are paying attention to it. We're doing a tremendous amount of uh, research and development in the space. And I can tell you, having you know been in these two worlds for a while, there's incredible parallels between the ETF market and the digital asset cryptocurrency market. And I could extend you know that discussion if, if you want. We are spending a tremendous amount of energy um, on this space. We've been engaged here uh, for an extended period of time, but we're seeing changes in the market now that are increasing our focus in this segment. And so, um, again, it's a technology uh, is really you know an investment in blockchain, an investment in digital assets, and cryptocurrency is an investment in technology. And as you pointed out, we have often pioneered new ways to gain exposure to asset classes. So you think back to our build out of bank loans, uh, fixed income. There's a lot of questions that need to be solved in this blockchain, uh, more specifically Bitcoin uh, space. I would argue that the first Bitcoin ETF is not the ending place. There is going to be, uh, theoretically, a whole series of return patterns in this market, in this new asset class. And it's something that we are, again, spending a lot of energy on. Again, I think about it's 12-year-old technology now, but where are we in the network effects of this market? And Eric, rest assured, we are continuing to drive innovation, thoughtful innovation. And this is a space that uh, you know we are, we are continuing to, to put energy against. So another product that we are really interested in is um, SPLV, which is this low volatility ETF that had been really popular and then sort of, um, you know, everybody left, it seemed. But now it's actually starting to perform. So just just wondering, like, when you have a product like that, that maybe is, is you know, potential to have a moment yet, like, how do you how do you like get people re-excited about it? Can I just actually add to that? Because what Joel talks about is something we have found, which is, you know, we call it, do you, do you get a second bite at the apple? Currency hedging ETFs just went through this. They, they crushed it. Everybody rushed and it. it was like a craze. Then they started underperforming the non-hedged index. Everybody left. They come back. They perform great over another year or two. Nobody cares. I, do you think that's going to happen to Loval? So we, we've been getting a lot of questions on low vol in particular recently. Uh, it's been a big part of our client discussions. And I'd widen the lens here and go back to 2011. When we launched low vol, the same day we launched it, we launched high beta. So kind of the yin and the yang. And now we've got 10 years of history on these two products. Again, low vol, a lot of attention there. I can tell you when we were developing these products, you know, we had uh, discussions internally, which one's going to be more uh, implemented. And I can tell you that um, there was a thinking that high beta was going to be the revolutionary product because it's going to provide this this new return pattern. 
And much to many people's surprise, uh, Loval took off, SPLV, uh, for its different return pattern. Now we're 10 years later, we can look at these two and see how they performed, how they gathered assets. Um, you know, they're kind of, again, the yin and the yang. One holds the lowest volatility stocks of the S&P 500. The other one holds the highest beta securities. And again, CAPM would tell us that high beta should beat low volatility. Uh, you're rewarded for the risk you're taking there. And 10 years later, high beta SPHB has performed better than SPLV, uh, but ironically, SPLV has you know significantly larger assets. And so these are capabilities and return patterns that we don't look at, Eric, you know, in, in isolation. There's low volatility, there's high beta, there's momentum, there's quality. Uh, we offer those as well. And we do see some rotation through the different factors uh, based on where we are in market cycles. But our role is to provide the return pattern. And, you know, what we're seeing in the more much shorter time horizon here is that, you know, there is starting to be a return to quality, a return to, to low volatility. Um, and again, you look at the pandemic period, uh, I would point out that low volatility underperformed during that period, a period where it should have you know, done well. Um, having said that, you know, we've looked back on this through different times and we've seen the this, this strategy underperform, but the behavioral finance element of this index, you know, people will, will ultimately um, sell at the wrong time uh, is, is certainly evident in, in, in this. And we think that the anomaly of low volatility is still as relevant today as it was in, in prior markets. Invesco QQQ is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Want to rethink what's possible? How about being an investor, not just in your future, but the future? Well, it all starts with Invesco QQQ. For more than 25 years, this single ETF has given investors a direct line to the NASDAQ 100. That's 100 leading innovators behind advances in personal tech, science, and robotics, just to name a few. And you can access it all with Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. One of the things you bring up is the idea that smart beta takes the emotion out of active management because you are have a system, there's criteria, it rebalances in a schedule. It's almost like R2-D2. It's a droid. No matter what happens, the thing just does what it is programmed to do. This really came up, I'm sure you're going to love this story because it's favorable to, towards your ETF, but it could have gone the other way, which is PEJ, which is the Dynamic uh, Leisure ETF, which... You know, it's one of these ETFs that holds a lot of the stocks that benefit from the reopening trade. So it and Jets were, were used quite a bit. Now, what's interesting is it bought um, AMC, the movie theater chain, and then AMC gets uh, hijacked by the Wall Street Bets and Reddit crowd, goes up like, I don't know, 300%, 600%, something ridiculous. And then PEJ sells AMC the next quarter. And it's, it perfectly timed it. I got to be honest, this was like a trade that uh, no human could do because once a stock is that good, it's almost hard to let go like that. 
but you did it. And I guess I just want to talk about the concept of rebalancing luck or how people in, who are ETF investors should think about rebalancing. Should they look at how often it does? Um, what would you recommend on that front? Yeah, so you, you hit on a lot of topics here. The first one I'd go back to is, you know, PEJ was launched in the early 2000s, sat in $50 million in AUM, uh, kind of to Joel's comments earlier, and then had its day in the sun and went from $50 million uh, to $4 billion mostly about this reopening trade. And Eric, as you point out, the securities in the portfolio, uh, you know, provided a targeted exposure to the reopening trade. And so we saw significant inflows there. Rebalancing is key to good portfolio management. And so smart beta codes that into it, right? And so this particular ETF rebalances and reconstitutes four times a year, unemotionally, predefined, um, just as you pointed out, um, you know, does things systematically. And it's that systematic nature that is important to the return pattern. And to your point, you know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, this was a very well-timed rebalance with AMC. So let me, let me unpack that for, for a quick second. The index looks at price momentum, earnings momentum, quality, management action, and value. And it rates them every quarter on that. And then it takes the 30 names that are you know, scoring the best on those attributes, which again, these are just common sense attributes that a manager would, would use. That's what it holds uh, in the portfolio. In this instance, it actually, um, you know, uh, on, on, on the May rebalance, um, right before the rebalance, AMC was at $26 a share. The calendar turned, we rebalanced on the first day of June, and it actually sold AMC at $62 a share. Much as you pointed out, you know, a trade that would have been hard to do if it wasn't systematic. But I point back to really, a, you know, the, the idea that rebalancing is important in portfolio construction. As you ask, it's important for investors to understand how does their fund rebalance? How frequently? How does it select securities? That's a key uh, element to understand in ETFs. And, and my favorite story is um, our fundamentally weighted ETF, PRF which is a, um, you know, a, a 1,000 security portfolio in the thick of the financial crisis back in, in, in March uh, of 2009. It was going through its annual reconstitution and it was looking at the banking sector and saying, how big is the banks, are, are the banks from a sales, cash flow, book value, dividends? And it said, these are still very important entities and it upweighted its exposure to financials, you know, in a very significant way. Um, I remember the calls we were getting from clients. You're buying financials right now. How could this fund possibly be doing that? But when you're looking at five-year trailing on sales, cash flow, book value, and dividend, Citigroup's still a big organization. These banks that were very small in size uh, at that point got upweighted in the index, and that drove tremendous outperformance uh, from that rebalance uh, forward, which again, to your point, uh, these things can be timed well, but the important aspect is continuing to rebalance. John, I, w I just want to stay with this, the rebalance thing for a second longer, because it's such an important part of, of smart beta, right? It's like you've got a robot, basically, that's going to like do what it does when you say it, when you tell it to do what it does, right? But within that, I'm even wondering, like, do you all have a ranking system 
of like the robots who like surprise you and do a really good job and others that are like need a little bit more improvement on, on their rebalancing abilities? How do you guys evaluate that internally? So we're constantly uh, looking at the methodologies of the underlying indices and, and, and making sure that they're providing the return pattern that we've stated um, as the objective. Uh, and, and we've done enhancements and you know, evolved indices and, and changed indices through time uh, to ensure that we're providing clients with, with you know, the best way of accessing that particular return. And I can tell you, again, back in, in, in the early days of ETFs, as we talked to clients about um, you know, this, this rebalance frequency, um, the initial reaction from, from traditional you know, thinking was, well, you're going to have, you know, high turnover is, is going to, you know, is, is ultimately a negative attribute of, of, you know, what we've been trained on in, in asset management. But the reality is that turnover uh, is what drives some of the tax efficiency of the ETF. And so, again, uh, our, our core element and focus has been about challenging convention, you know, in the pursuit of, of innovation and rebalance frequency is now something that everybody understands, um, you know, drives efficiency from a tax perspective uh, and the ability to, to um, uh, mitigate uh, potentially taxable gains at the fund level. Um, let me, uh, I, I kind of want to end the conversation here talking a little business. Um, uh, two, two things I want to ask about, they're both kind of related, which is just your, your strategy for, for growth. Um, you know, it's tough. I mean, if Vanguard and BlackRock are going to take in 70% of the money, that leaves about 30% for about 100 firms. You guys are taking a nice chunk of that, but people wonder how, how can you make it? Um, how, are, what, how are you going to grow? You guys acquired Guggenheim, you acquired Oppenheimer. Some people will equate you with acquisitions, so I'm curious if you have any there. And then the other thing is this move with uh, QQQ. You come up with QQQM, which essentially is the same thing, but it's in a different type of structure. It's not a unit investment trust, which means that you get to actually make some money on it because the Qs has the kind of um, uh, structure... I'll let you explain it, but I guess why launch QQM and who are you going to acquire next? <laughs> Just break the news here. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I know this is run on a delay, so that'll be interesting. No, I'm not kidding. So the, uh, the launch of QQQM and, and QQQJ, you know, we look back at it now, we're a year past that launch. Um, QQQJ, you know, was awarded the most innovative ETF of 2020, opened up this new segment of, of the Qs, if you will, the next 100 innovators. Looks so obvious today, right? Uh, of course, we're going to do QQQJ. QQQM is now bigger than QQQJ um, at 1.3 billion. It's accelerating. We're seeing clients uh, that preference, you know, fee um, you know, moving to, to QQQM, it has a lower management fee. But again, it's really about providing clients more ways uh, to access, you know, this incredibly important capability, this index, the NASDAQ 100, um, with different attributes. Again, I gave the example of DBC and PDBC, uh, K1 and no K1. QQQM and QQQ uh, provide uh, very similar exposures but are structured differently depending on a client's preference. And so, you know, where there's high priority for liquidity, uh, trading volume, uh, QQQ, you know, is, is, is one of the most traded securities in the world. Uh, where there's fee sensitivity, we're seeing clients implement QQQM. As it relates to, to growth, 
um, you know, we have really uh, continued to center our focus, um, you know, on on client outcomes, which which I think everybody would talk about in this market. One of the things that we think about within ETFs is, you know, the client experience can only be, at, you know, at the at the highest level equal to our, our our employee experience. And so we're spending a lot of time um, on our employee uh, morale, culture, people, knowing that if we get the best people from an ETF perspective, um, we're going to continue to drive innovation. And that's going to extend beyond just product development, but really about, again, that full ecosystem of how a client interfaces with ETFs. And I know, Eric, we talked about um, the opportunity with direct indexing to create personalization. We think that, you know, as a bit of a teaser here, there's things that can be done around the client experience that drive personalization in this traditional 40 act wrapper. And we're spending more and more time around that full client experience. And that's what's gonna drive our growth. My colleague, Athanasios Serafagas, really laid out a nice case for why you guys should buy State Street's ETF business um, it, it really merges well. And then one of your ex-colleagues, Ben Fulton, wrote about that also in ETF.com saying <clears throat> this would make a lot of sense. So any any uh, thoughts on that or you just want to – I'm going to guess you're going to pass. Look, I, I would say, as you pointed out, um, historically we've grown organically and inorganically. Um, you, know, you mentioned in the U.S. You know, we, we acquired the PowerShares business. Guggenheim's ETF business in Europe. We acquired the source business. Uh, most recently, you know, we we uh, combined with the Oppenheimer funds capability here in the U.S. So we've grown both organically and inorganically, and I think it all comes down to the client experience and and what makes most sense. And that's ultimately what our North Star is. And so I wouldn't comment on one particular name. You know, there's 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 news every day and speculation every day on, on all of these things. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, our North Star is about client and client experience. Um, and that's what's going to drive our decisions going forward. OK, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get you to say something about a single name, but it'll be a little bit different, which is we've talked about a lot of, of Invesco's ETFs here out of 233, is there anyone that we didn't talk about that you have a special affinity for? Uh, you know, I, I know what he's we... going to say. Go ahead, Eric. Bullet shares. That's my guess, but go ahead. You know what? <laughs> I, I think, um, look, I, I, I don't, uh, there's not one in Invesco particular. Invesco loves it, bullet it, shares. I would too. They're great products. I'm just... No, I look, I think, look, it's, it's, there's a technology associated with bullet shares that is innovative. It, it makes an ETF feel like a big bond, certainly an interesting capability and something that we saw in the acquisition of Guggenheim. Uh, having said that, um, you know, the, I, there's not a particular product that I would uh, jump off the page, you know, in terms of uh, newness. I, maybe, possibly, Joel, if I had to answer it and go somewhere, um, you know, our senior loan ETF uh, is one that um, you know a number of teams uh, across the organization worked on to pioneer. We had so many questions at the time of how to bring this OTC uh, structure on exchange, something that settles uh, in in much longer cycles and prices differently. And uh, today, BKLN is one of the largest loan funds in the world, and it was about opening exposure, opening access to that return pattern. So uh, one that we're seeing more and more interest in recently, but um, of the, as I said on the front end, you know, I love all 225 of our kids the same. <laughs> okay, so 
Let, let me also ask you a question that we ask everyone at the end of Trillions, which is favorite ETF ticker that is not your own. Favorite ETF ticker that's not my own. I'm going to go with Moo, M-O-O, just because that was one of the early ones that, um, you know, really uh, created brand recognition on its own, uh, you know, early in the days there and, and certainly uh, a memorable one. Yeah, it's a favorite. That's a, that's a popular one. Yeah. John Hoppin, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Joel, Eric, thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Invesco at Invesco US. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. This podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.